Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer business and other interesting fields of endeavor. I'm here in the tap room with my co-host, Maria Cabre. Hola, Maria. Hi, John, and happy Independence Day. (laughs) Who's our first guest? We're going to call this one our Independence Day show. We have two very special guests this week who are going to answer the question, what kind of beer did our founding fathers drink 246 years ago when our nation was born? There are two very recognizable faces in Philadelphia and beyond. Each has achieved near-legend status in their respective fields. Their paths crossed when they collaborated on four ales that were based on recipes from four of the founding fathers. Let's meet them. One of our guests is a third-generation restaurateur with more than four decades of culinary experience. He is an author of seven cookbooks, a multiple Emmy Award-winning TV host, a James Beard-nominated chef, and the nation's most beloved culinary historian. He began his career in Europe, receiving formal training in many of the continent's finest hotels and restaurants. As the chef operator of City Tavern in Philadelphia for over 25 years, he faithfully recreated many of the dishes that were popular in the 18th century in the colonies. He helped do the same with the ales of the time. Our other guest is the founder, president, and brewmaster of Yards Brewing Company in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Since his humble beginnings in a garage in the Manayunk section of the city, Yards has grown to become the largest and best-known brewery in Philadelphia. Over the years, his beers have garnered numerous awards and national acclaim. In 2017, he moved Yards into a new state-of-the-art 70,000-square-foot facility in the North Liberties neighborhood of the city. Through many years of growth and success, our guest and his brewery have stayed true to their community-focused motto, Brew Unto Others. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Chef Walter Stabe, and welcome to the Beer Hour, Tom Kehoe. Thank you guys very much for joining me and Maria today on the show. It's uh, very much our pleasure to have you on. Great to be part of the show. Yes, and uh, this is uh, actually something... uh, Rocco actually put together, but I'm very, uh, very excited to uh, to do this show, actually. So as we mentioned in, in the intro, you guys are friends. You guys have collaborated on at least four beers that, that I have seen. My first question to both of you is, how did you guys meet? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, many, many, many years ago, I hooked up with Tom, and I said, Tom, I'm reopening this city town, which, which was actually tomorrow, or would have been uh, 94, tomorrow, rather, wow. July 1st. And so uh, when all the research I did, as you know, the city town is owned by the Department of the Interior. So right. if, but when you develop an RFP for the government, you have to do a lot of work. And part of the work was uh, initially finding out how important ale or beer or any beverage for the matter was in the 18th century, much more than we even give it credit to too many times. Right. And so uh, 
I've, I've read uh, a lot of the different uh, manuscripts and information I've gotten, how Washington loves his small beer, how Franklin liked his post beer, how Jeff- Jefferson had an English poor come over. And so uh, let me do find Tom. And uh, he had a little tiny little, uh, I call it a laboratory, <laughs> experimental <laughs> place uh, in Marion. And matter of fact, I would take, I, I was driving a VW van, okay. and I would drive on my way to the city tavern, stop in Manayang, and load up a keg of beer and bring it down. So we've been <laughs> collaborating for like 26 years for sure. That's amazing. And uh, whenever he had it ready that he liked it, I always liked it because I don't think anything that Tom ever does is schlock. It's all, it's all great. <laughs> but what's so important was for me, and what most people don't realize, that beverages played such an important role that I actually, in my cookbook, in the City Town Cookbook, is an entire section. And even the recipes I printed in there because oh. I got them from the rare manuscript department of the New York Public Library and the other one from the Franklin Papers. The only recipe that I don't, don't have in there because it's, it's a little cloudy and, and Tom knows it's the Thomas Jefferson, the unfiltered retail, because uh, he had the English poor come over and there's nothing really documented. There are two different documents uh. flying around. I didn't want to be so I left, left like that. And when the Ford beer came along, we then started, we were the first in Philadelphia with the samplers. Oh, <laughs> and then everybody copied us, obviously, like, <laughs> like it is like that. But what's so important to me as a chef was you cannot interpret the 18th century and really do a great job and go fresh from farm to table and ignoring the beverages. And obviously, ale played a major part. I mean, you, you just think about it. William Penn, when he came over here, when he promoted the fact of freedom and liberty to right. come to America, to the Europeans, what did he put in his promo? He put in his promo that our ale tastes better here than over there. <laughs> and he actually built a brewery right next to his house, a kitchen house, a laundry and a brewery. And we actually filmed uh, an episode over there, Megan Beers, the, the 18th century way. I also filmed with Tom way back when, uh, and seeing how he... Uh, still with the modern equipment, put a little Alberta spruce in the spruce ale that, uh, uh, believe it or not, once we took it off the tap one time in the tavern, right. I had a revolution. I had to put it back <laughs> on again. Normally it's, only, it's normally only drunk in the holiday in Europe where it's from. I mean, that's, right. that's not, but then everybody liked it, and so they did Very it. Nice. And, Tommy, you did it for me exclusively. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You yeah. sold it That's awesome. I think we, we, I think what's so important for the people to know, I'm a chef, all right, but beverages play such an important part during this entire dining experience, you know, be it the material, be it the shrub, be it you name it, you know? Nice. So before we actually get into what the founding fathers were drinking, I'd like to kind of give our listeners a sense of your individual journeys as creators and entrepreneurs as we typically do here on the Beer Hour. So, but Chef Stop, we're going to start with you. Uh, you're up first here. So from what I have read, and it was kind of predetermined that you would become a great chef, you were born in Germany to a second-generation chef. 
How old were you when you started to learn your craft, and when did you realize you had a passion for it? Well, let me read this way. Where I grew up, uh, right after uh, the Second World War, uh, I had a help in the restaurant, family on the restaurant. So as a young child already, I cannot admit to you on your show how young I was drinking beer. I had to be <laughs> four or five years old. <laughs> and ever since, and I'm still around. There you go. So yes. beer, because beer, beer is really food. So, yes. And when you, when you think about it in Germany, in the Reinheitsgebot, uh, it's really considered food. And for that matter, many many times I, I lecture or I talk to people and their eyes get open and I said beer was really a responsibility of the, the woman of the house because it was really considered food. You know, it wasn't right. really considered uh, an, uh, an alcoholic beverage. So... I was always interested in it, and so I stayed. I stayed with it. Lucky for me, I was educated in a really classical manner uh, in the Black Forest. Uh, I worked in France. I worked in Italy. I worked in Switzerland, and I came to America just for one year. It's been a long year. <laughs> <laughs> I came in '69. But to all fast forward, I was intrigued when I was reading about the lifestyle of the 18th century, founding fathers and anybody else who had uh, the means. I mean, it's just unbelievable. When we talk about today having a fancy meal and a bunch of toast, if I tell you that they would have 30 toasts of Madeira on a given meal, toast to the king, I'm talking before the revolution, right. toast to the king, toast to the, I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of uh, alcohol they consumed. And obviously, the water was so bad in the Philadelphia area and yes. many other areas right. that drinking beer was safe because you drink a beer, <laughs> you drink the beer up to temperature, and so therefore, it's not, you know, it's, it's bacteria free. Right. So this how, this how, this how, it got me into it, and that's when initially, when I planned to spend all this money and building a bake shop and making everything from scratch, when I wanted to really bring the beverages to the forefront. That's why in my cookbook, the senior book, is a whole big section of explaining the philosophy nice. of beverages in the 18th century. You wow, know, that's wow. bottom line. So you also ran the city tavern for 25 years can, can you describe for our listeners the city tavern which you you have run for so long well actually it was, it was 26 years 26 <laughs> okay it was, it was and it was covid uh, and uh, that kind of made us close our doors because okay. philadelphia didn't have any visitors what i have you uh, plus also the building itself needed a lot of uh, structural repair for life safety standards you know we didn't have sprinklers throughout the place, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what it was like, it, it was to me unbelievable the amount of people that we passed through the restaurant, and the amount of people that really couldn't appreciate the 18th century because there is nothing better than actually drinking an ale and eating the food at the same time, eating some of our pastries, smelling the, the smelling the, the great bacon down in the big shop that, that perfumed the whole restaurant. It was exciting. It was, it was a big restaurant. I mean, we had up to 85 employees. So wow. I mean, a small, open seven days a week. Okay. But what I did is, what I did is, I maintained as much as I could. I had cheated a little bit 
as much as I could uh, the historical uh, nature of the recipes. Nice. In the beginning, I would drive to the wedding market, but then I had people in Lancaster supplying me. As we got busier, unfortunately, I could not maintain this kind of relationship. Right. And deal with, with vendors. But it was always something. Food played a very important part in the city town. And when people talk about how many accolades we've gotten, it's because... We've done something that nobody had done before. Right. Because remember, yeah. the city tower opened for the bicentennial, but they couldn't make it work. And the government had closed it down. And then I reopened it. And actually, tomorrow would have been my opening day in 94, July wow. 3rd. Wow. Three, okay. three days before the 4th of July, I've, I've, <laughs> I've opened. And, uh, nice. and uh, honestly, looking back, I miss the city tower every day. There's no question about it. But not so much of the work. But the people, right? And the people came in, you know. And people say, "Oh God, I don't, don't believe that," because people have no understanding how sophisticated the 18th century was. And I'm not talking about everybody. I'm talking to people with means, uh, with the affluent people. And plus, after the revolution, you must think, think what happened there. Oh yes. Nobody, yeah. no, nobody wanted to be associated with the British, so right. basically, it was French. And ah. the Germans that were already here in Lancaster County, Germantown, this came more on the forefront, you know. Yep. And when you think about Second Street, uh, City Town is located on Second at Walnut, right on the corner. Right. The entire Second Street, the local French people, remember, Bastille days, right around the corner, July 14. So when people knew what's going to happen over there in the revolution, they made their money liquid, but where did they came to? To America and where to Philadelphia. Wow. So Second Street was almost called La Petite Champs-Élysées. So you had a lot of French influx already built into it wow. with the French people that came. So finding croissant and pasta and ice cream all this was already part of it. So my menu, when people used to come in the beginning and say, oh, you have this lobster pie with the sherry uh, cream sauce and this kind of thing there. I mean, was this already available? I said, but of course. And it's because the influx of the, the French, French from, yep. from a culinary point, because they were very welcome. Because obviously, without the French, we would have not scored the revolution right then and there. We may, yep. we may, but if the king would have not sent Rochambeau over with 5,000 guys to march down from Newport all the way to Yorktown, God knows what would have happened. Right. So exactly. I'm, I'm as much into the history uh, of the tavern and delivering the history and doing it in, in the best possible way. That's amazing. So how did your 15-time Emmy Award-winning show, A Taste of History, come about? How did that even start? Actually, it's really interesting. It's really, it's, uh, I'll give it to you a quick. You're going to have to chop it down a little bit. I was a lot on television. What, what happened was this. 9-11 came, okay. and uh, so a lot of my consulting business kind of got dried up a little bit. I was very busy overseas and working in Brazil and in India and many other many other uh, countries, and everything got curtailed back. So then I became a regular on a local show uh, on CNA, which is a, a Comcast network. Right. And uh, the owner's wife... Uh, she, Susanne Roberts, she really liked what I did on the show. With the, the, the show was called Let's Cook with Paul Dillon. And she said, hey, you talk so much about history. You do so much about yourself. What about producing a, a, a pilot 
for us. Uh, we'll, we'll produce it for you. I think it'll be fun. She brought all of her executives over to the tavern. I entertained them all. I explained them all. I had the Benjamin Franklin over, and I had, to, you know, and basically we did a pilot, and uh, once we had the pilot finished, they also decided to close down production by themselves and basically concentrating on sports and ready-made program. So here I was with my hand, with a, with a demo tape, nowhere wow. to go. Okay. I knocked on PBS's door. They saw it was a great idea. And so between PBS and some sponsors of Sandals Resorts and uh, Deason Watson, we were able to keep the show alive. And now, I should tell you, uh, season 12, it just finished. It's going to air uh, October 1st on PBS and then later so many other platforms. And season 13, we're going to start filming next week starting up in Maine. Amazing. We go to Australia. We maybe go to Madagascar. We're going to Nakaman. So we suddenly booked for 13 and a lot of interest already in 14. <laughs> but the, the method of the show has always been the same. It's history, explaining it, it's location. It's a little bit of fun, but it's very clean. Nice. You can learn from the show. I nice. mean, I'm not... I don't get wasted on his. I don't drink his beer anyway because it's too high on alcohol. Right. It'll <laughs> they'll, they'll do me in. But so that's how the show became about, really. And nice. uh, uh, seven cookbooks later. Right. And not to forget behind me, there were 15 Emmys. Part yes, of course. That, 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 that the show got because uh, we take it real serious. And uh, Phil, that you just saw for two seconds. Yes. He's a producer of the show, and he organizes everything. And uh, he's a real pain in you know where, as all producers, <laughs> are, as all producers are. So we get it done. So that is amazing. It's, it, it's, but it really came that people enjoy real food. Yes. Real yes. convenience food. Yes. You know, and nothing. We made everything from scratch. Think about it. Yeah. That's why I had so much employees. It was never about the bottom line. It was always about guest satisfaction. And wow. a very complicated one with four-story building, office on the top floor. Tom used to come up there huffing and puffing, visiting, <laughs> visiting, visiting me. Uh, and oh. uh, and, and we together. Matter of fact, I will tell you that, honestly, I only had four peers on top, his peers. Right. You know how many people would be knocking on my door and hey, A lot. A lot. Tom worked so hard on it because... How many hours he worked on it? Right. How many hours I worked on it? The right. research we've done, which is right in the book, people can read it. Uh, he was committed as much as I was committed. So there was a marriage made in heaven. Nice. As a matter of fact, early on, we did many of those, uh, like we're doing right now with you. Right. Uh, many of the beer dinners, him did or a lecture where people could ask questions of why. I mean, it would have been much easier for me to take any kind of big national uh, uh, beer company and have the spigot in there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. We went to a lot of extra. He went to a lot of extra trouble. I went to a lot of extra trouble. But in the end of the day, it was definitely worth it. Good, good. Actually, let's uh, let's turn to Tom. So, Tom, okay. you, gr you grew up in Haddonfield, New Jersey, just across the river yeah. from Philly. When did you first experience craft beer? So, when I went to... Uh, prep school we started uh, a little group called the varsity beer club okay and we would go out and we would try all these different imported imported beers like okay. beck stark and you know Lowenbrow zurich anything we can get our hands on we were just trying a beer because we were just of age 
And we were able to just, you know, start grabbing some beer and seeing what we liked. And it's funny, the, uh, <clears throat> when I was a freshman in college, we went to, uh, this, uh, bar in the mall called Dunderbox. Okay. And they had all the different kind of like, you know, meat and sausages and everything. And they had a selection of beer, a lot of German beer, things like that. But they had one beer that I just like, I have to try this. It was called Ankerstein. Oh, okay. And this was in 1983. Ooh. And I had an Ankerstein from, from San Francisco. I'm like, we can make great beer here in the United States. Not really. And it just started, got, got me just started thinking, you know, nice. it's like, wow, this is pretty good. You know, I wonder if there's any other craft brewers or we didn't even know what to call them back then, you know, just breweries right? Of course, that, that made, that made great beer in, in, in the United States. And, uh, you know, we kept looking around. We actually found a, a, a beer that we were blown away by. It was Ballantine IPA back then. Yep. Okay. So I, that's kind of the ones that sort of inspired me early and things like that. And then next thing you know, I ended up buying a uh, homebrew kit. Okay. And, Started uh, making beer in my dorm room. <laughs> <laughs> and, and away it goes. I mean, that, that tends to, yeah, see, you know, really. like from the other brewers I've talked to, it, it it's like one or two beers that kind of sparks that fire and it kind of grows from there. And yeah. it, that's mine was Firestone Walker Pale Ale back in right. 2004. And I was like, man, this is great beer. I wonder if I could do this myself at my house. And that's kind of what, you know, uh, my, you know, I got a Mr. Beer kit and then I would, you know, making a gallon at a time was like not enough for everybody to drink. So then it moved into the five, 10 gallon homebrew kits and it just kind of yep. obviously moves on from there. <laughs> when did you meet your co-founder, John Bovitt? So he was in, he was brewing with me in college. Okay. Uh, we were both on a wrestling team and, uh, really liked you know, just, just like, like, you know, all the different beers that we were trying, you know, love the English ales. Um, what, what sort of happened in college, the, uh, one of the professors found out we were making beer and he comes up to us and goes, Hey, I hear you guys are making beer in the dorm. And we're like, you know, are we getting in trouble? You know, we right, said, yes, right. we are, you know, yeah. I don't want to lie to anybody. He's like, well, he goes, I brew every weekend. <laughs> oh, wow. And I have a full grain system in the basement. We'd love to have you guys come by, bring some of your beer so we can try it. So we ended up going there and brewing an all grain batch with this guy and a couple other professors that were doing it too. And, you know, it was like, this is great. You know, we're just, we're getting like advanced <laughs> brewing, you know, after our like sixth batch. And, uh, we ended up going to a brewery that day after nice. we we're done brewing to visit. And I always say, it's like, we went to this brewery, it was called the British Brewing Company that later became Oxford Brewing Company. Okay. Um, and we just, you know, we, we went on tour and we stayed. Wow. We ended up working there, co you know, doing like right. a co-op thing with school there, everything. Wow. And we just started cutting our teeth, uh, you know, ma making beer in a little brewery in Maryland. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That <laughs> yeah. is, I mean, so the story goes after college, you moved to Manayunk, a cool, gentrified neighborhood about 10 miles outside of Center City and started brewing yep. beer out of your garage. What do you remember about those early days of Yards Brewing? Well, you know, it's funny. We basically patterned our, uh, we, we had a homemade system as a lot of people did oh, back then, got yes. the dairy tanks, got whatever you could. Yep. We had, we had our kettle and everything made by a small company that just manufactured, you know, test equipment for Coke and Pepsi and things like that. And, right. uh, you know, we had a, you know, sort of patterned our system after, uh, like an Alan Pugsley system where it was a direct fire, you know, with brick around the kettle and we just started making beer. The only thing we wouldn't use was the ringwood yeast. We 
decided to use like the, uh, you know, basically a London ale three yeast. Right. And we were off. We started making our first beer, which was an extra special ale, strong English ale. And, you know, we were really into making beers like, you know, that were significant. You know, we did a, we did an oyster stout. Oh, you know, that yum. was the first thing that sort of got us going to like, you know, this is an old style and nobody's right. doing this anymore and kind of got us into the history of beer and things like that. Right. Right from the get go. That's which was the, and our first porter was a, an entire butt. Like, Ooh, you know, I know, I know that. Yes. So, I mean, we were, we were into that kind of thing and then meeting Walter, it was like, Oh wait, this is great. We can, we can, you know, this is what we're into. And, you know, it's, it's funny, like Walter was talking some of the stuff that we did as far as uh, research and, I actually contacted Monticello and things like that. I got Combrun's book on brewing. Wow. They did a reprint of this old book, and you know it's written in that old English font and things like that, yep. where the S's are F's, and you know it sort of got you into <laughs> yes. in, into the into like the uh, mindset of what brewers were doing and what they did back then. And I was like, my gosh, this is perfect. We got a direct flame brew kettle it's like there was nothing else there was no steam kettles back then <laughs> so that's we were wild. like we we're off to the races and we had so much fun designing awesome. these beers and figuring out you know the recipe and you know making some tweaks on our own right. to make sure it, you know it tasted great that's that's amazing <laughs> so actually i mean yeah. this is amazing actually from so from 94 to 2017 you outgrew four locations and are now located yes. in your fifth Yards yes. now, you guys now operate out of a 70,000 square foot, 100 barrel facility at Fifth and Spring Garden containing a tasting room, brewery, canning line, private event room. This also, or was at that time, the only Zeman brew house on the East Coast, which is an amazing system, yeah. by the way. What was, your, yeah. what was your annual production before moving into that Fifth and Spring? And, and like, what is it now? So when, when we left uh, the, the Delaware Avenue facility, right. we were uh, we were doing about uh, thirty seven thousand um, of, of our of our beer, and then now we're doing about uh, about about forty five thousand of our beer, and we're doing a lot of uh, contract brewing and things like that, which brings our production up to about seventy seventy five thousand a year. <laughs> yeah, wow, that is amazing. It you know I mean this is I mean. While we're sitting at a mere four thousand. <laughs> well, we're trying to hit five thousand, right? Yeah, but I, I mean, it, it you know, all in a dorm room. Huh? Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. You got to start somewhere. You know what I mean? But you know, this this episode we, for we me, we fell over our shoelaces a couple times. Uh, yeah, I think I think I think we all do as we're on that journey. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, this episode is great for me because, um. I did not probably not as much as you guys, but I was very interested in the history of beer and have brewed a lot of what would be considered dead styles. So for me, what kind of put me on the map was the Berliner Weiss. Nobody in the United States was brewing a Berliner Weiss. No one even knew what a Berliner Weiss was back in 2008, 2009. The only one we were getting was the, the 1908, I think that came over in bottles that was imported. Nobody in the States was doing it. And I did my research on it and found out that it was, you know, more specific to Berlin, typically drank by women and sweetened with syrups after it was put into a goblet style glass. I kind of turned out its head because I was like, yo, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit at a 
kitchen burner and make reduced syrups to add to the beer afterwards. I went ahead and added fruit to the end of fermentation after the souring or inoculation process. And it's kind of what spun me to what I am now. But it's not the only style we've done. We've done a cot busser. We've done so many like other dead styles. I mean, there's more I want to do, but it's like, will people really drink these? But this is very inspiring for me to talk to you guys and really see how well these beers have done. And actually, it was funny. I was telling Rocco when he brought you guys up and having the forefather beers that you guys have made, I took a, I mean, I was already homebrewing and stuff, and I decided to go to FIU because they were holding or having a brewing class with, you know, credits and was put on by Barry Gump, um, a professor there, and... I'd, you know, typically they would have you brew inside the test kitchen and everything, but when I looked at it, it wasn't very sanitary and everything, and most of the beers didn't up, didn't, you know, ended up being infected if you use that system, so I made mine at home, and I actually did a rendition on a colonial-style 1800s porter, and it actually turned out amazing. It wasn't as dark as what nowadays porters would be, but it was more of a brown porter, and I think if I remember correctly, it was from what I had dug up was a George Washington's recipe. I have out of this, I have a question for, for chef Steg. How important was beer back then to the nation? Well, remember beer were strong breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Ah. And it was not, it was not considered alcohol per se. It was considered a necessary beverage. Right. You couldn't drink the water. So if I was uh, visiting William Penn in the morning, I would fit my whatever uh, home fries and, and eggs and bacon, and I would have a, a glass of beer right next to it. It was a common procedure for a long time. And uh, so at beer itself, or ale, I would say, uh, look here. People ask me all the time, for instance, everybody in America uses the, the word uh, IPA. And very few people realize where IPA came from. It's the Indian pale ale because right. it was it was a bit of hop. It let itself ship, and it got shipped to, to, to the English troops into uh, to, to India. And now it's a common word. Everybody knows IPA. You know. Right. So I have fun with that thing. But I want to tell you something before uh, just the, ale. the the unique thing that the ales of the revolution was created or born that Tom had the same interest as I had the same interest to research the recipe and spend enough time. I cannot tell you how many times he made a batch and he didn't like it, that I, that I even know about it. I only know about a few of them, you know what I'm saying? Right. Because it's a, a lot of trial and error. And, you know, the recipes are a handful of that and a handful of that, as you just said in the English. I do have all the books here too, the books of the English brewers. It's all different. But I think the commitment that he has and the vision uh, worked mine together. So right. ale played a very, 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 very important part. Not just ale, but uh, talking about liquor, Adira, right. many, many other things as well, you know. Right. Cognac, uh, one, for instance, uh, a lot of the sailors that came into the inner port of uh, Philadelphia got paid in goods. They got a half a barrel or a barrel of rum. Well, as there, as there, as not the wrong. <laughs> they would go knock on the door of the city town and say, hey, what do you give me for that? You know, I've got 
Ram von Barbados. So ah, nice. Got Ram from from Jamaica. So this how so Ram was an important beverage as well, mixed in in the trap. But obviously, I could not honestly me sitting here today. I could not see how this country initially would have found without without beer. Beer, yeah, without yeah. beer. I mean, beer is as Fourth of July as everything there is, you know. <laughs> I I have a question though. To go along with the beer, wh- what would people have been eating around that time our nation was formed? And I know these were the dishes that you served for many years at the City Tavern, but like, what were those dishes that people were eating back then? Well, see, the two things we got to remember: take away, you got to take away the, the hamburgers and oh. this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, they did. But, right. but they would eat. They would eat good. A lot of sausages got eaten, and the reason for that was uh, heavy Germans settled right in Philadelphia, Germantown, Lancaster. Right. So sausages would be constantly be served, and a lot of things would be like you know, like uh, a cold plate with maybe some sausages, some cheese, some good hearty breads would have been eaten, not as a sandwich combination, but this is like a, a cold butter. And obviously, uh, in Philadelphia, for a fact, a lot of sauerkraut, uh, meat sausages, variety of sausages, a lot of pork, you know, you like pork knuckles, uh, a lot of the foods that single Bavaria fuel a little bit of the Black Forest that we was eating there was, was eaten over here as well. Obviously, it became a little bit sophisticated through Mother. You got to remember some of the historical figures like Mother Washington. Yes, Mother Washington was a, a Custis with more money than I know what to say. So she had a very very fine palate wow. that they brought along with her. Not so much George, but she. So when they moved from New York uh, and moved the headquarters into Philadelphia, that kind of cuisine upscale really was introduced as well already, and a lot of it would be eaten as well. So I think uh, it's a difference. First of all, I'm not against fast food. There's room for fast food, but there is nothing better than really food like we used to serve in the tavern, right. homemade food, you know. Good quality. Good quality. You know, like uh, the beef pie and other pies, stuff like that was eaten, you know. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Tom, how did the Revolutionary Series or Ales of the Revolution begin? Well, <laughs> after after the whole beginning with Walter talking about it, you know, and really researching recipes and things like that and b- busting up the ideas, it was just the fact that we were able to make full batches of these beers and Walter would buy them all because we only had a, we only started off with a three barrel system. Right. And we were able to, you know, basically, you know, get, get these uh, beers right to him. And it was, you know, we didn't realize that, you know, this was something that was really going to take off as far as, you know, uh, tourism and things like that at the city, city tavern. And we were, you know, just in love with the fact that we had this, uh, 
person. It was an account that heck he was almost like 10 or 15% of our, of our total business at one point. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, and, and we, it was like, we were trying to grow as, you know, as soon as we could. Right. And we, we did, and it really made it feasible to be able to supply the city tavern and things like that. The one issue was we ended up growing uh, a little bit bigger in our, in our next move. And, uh, we're just like, you know, these batches, we can't like just store the beer so you guys can buy it. Right. You know, we'd like to promote it everywhere. And we bottled it and, you know, put city tavern on there and it just sort of grew, grew that way, which was, which was a lot of fun. And I think, you know, there was always excitement because you have a lot of history buffs yes, and they want to try the beer. They want to take the beer home. There's a lot of reasons that, you know, other than just having a beer at a, at a place that, that brought you, a place in time of experience. Right. Yes. People wanted to bring that home. So it really, you know, that's when the ales really started to blossom. Yeah, it like was that. so popular once you put it in the six packs. Yeah. Because people <laughs> would love to take it. I got the license to uh, sell the beer. Right. I mean, people really would just come there, make great souvenirs, make great presents. You got six yeah. varieties for a variety pack. Right. And you could tell the bartender which one you wanted. So, if you want an old George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Ben Franklin or Alexander Hamilton, we will do that for you. Yeah. And also, Yards did a great job on the, the graphics, later developing the graphic more into the ills of the revolution. But I think in, in total thing, it was meant to be. It was meant to be that it taken uh, Tom Keogh and Walter Schaaf together to never mind the bottom line. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Never mind. Just really doing something that hadn't been done before. Yeah. Now it's been done. So if somebody now opens the city tavern, he can have the deal tomorrow. No right. big deal for us. It was a lot of work. Yes, and I, a lot of I, and, I, a lot I, of, I, and a lot of trial and error, as you just said. And yeah. Some of the beers I wouldn't even want to talk to you about it when it tasted. <laughs> until, until then, especially I think we had a lot of trouble with the Thomas Jefferson, just because of the. We didn't have really defined recipes. We have really defined recipe on Washington and Franklin and Alexander Hamilton, but the, the Jefferson was always a little cloudy. So, uh, actually, I want to talk about that. So, let's let's break these down for our listeners. Let Let's start with Jefferson's Golden Nail. Tom, why don't you describe it? And Chef, maybe can you give us a backstory on it? So, well, Tom- you see, you see, me or Tom. Go, go ahead, Tom, Tom. Can you? Uh... Okay. So the Jefferson Ale, it's um the way the way we have it out is at eight percent golden ale. So it was Jefferson wanted to do an ale like he drank in Philadelphia, um on you know when he actually brewed it at Monticello. Okay. So that's what we were coming up with, and it was a and basically uh, an ale that used all ingredients that he grew at Monticello. So wheat, which he was growing. I guess corn, also right. uh, rye and wheat. Uh, I said wheat and barley were in there because they were all being grown in Monticello. So he wanted to put that in there and sort of show people. It's like he wanted to say agriculture is so important to the growth of this country. Watch what I can do with it. Here's a beer I'm making with all the stuff that's grown right here wow. on our on our plantation okay. Monticello. So it was real important at that. And the funny thing is, you know, doing the research about it, talking about how much grain he would do the beer was actually supposed to be about 11 to 13 percent 
And we thought that would be really irresponsible of us to bring 11, 13% beer <laughs> to, the, to the tourism right. of Philadelphia. So we still made it strong. 8% was definitely a big beer and it still is. It really has a cult following because of that too. It's a, of course. you know, it's just a nice smooth golden ale and it really, you know, showed off what Jefferson was trying to do. So yeah, two of, two of them kick your butt. <laughs> yes. So actually, Chef, can you can you? So we've talked about the Golden Ale, Chef. Can you tell me about Washington's Porter? To me, Washington's Porter is a very pleasant one because with all the food. That's the other point is that the, all the beers that the Tom holds uh, for me are always compatible uh, with the different foods that he served. And my weight stuff knew pretty much, and the bartenders what to recommend. So the Washington uh, with a dark beer, obviously, but lighter on the palate. It goes along. It, it's it's a perfect with all of our dishes. Uh, such so is the uh, Alexander Hamilton. Right. Not so much on the, the Jefferson because it's a little strong. The Jefferson. Yeah. On the Jefferson, to me, I would tell people: see what we did when we when we start offering the beer flights with only two and a half two and a half ounces of beer. Right. Uh, we tell people try it, see which one you like. Right. And basically, this was a taster, and then after that, they will go and get a full pint. Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, they all the one that didn't move the strongest is maybe the Franklin, because uh, if you don't, it's great for cooking, by the way, and marinating. But the oh. spoons, right? Uh, you have a little, almost a little forest in your beer, you know. Right. But it's not necessarily for everybody. I, I took it off the tap and put it back on because everybody was complaining about it. Oh. It's, a, it's, a, it's such a unique beer, but it's not necessarily one that I would tell you to recommend just drink by itself. So I got a question. So if, if I remember correctly from when I, when I brewed Washington Supporter, I mean, I, did they not, they obviously did not have that great of an operation for killing malts back then. So it was not necessarily a dark porter. It was more of like a brown porter. But was there also, what, what was incorporated into that beer as far as ingredients-wise? Because obviously Wash, uh, Jefferson had all of the, the grains and everything that they were growing. What, was, what made Washington's porter so special? So what I really got out of Washington's porter, like you're saying, it's more of a brown porter. It was really more like an old ale. Right, yes. Like sir. somebody right. brewing an old ale. This maltiness, low hop, because, you know, the hops were just not, you know, readily as readily available as they as it should be. And also the the part of adding the molasses to it. Right. That's to get the right. refermentation and things like that. You know, we we made sure that we didn't use like a black strap molasses. We used an unsulfured molasses, things like yep. that to kind of yep. keep the palate, you know, at, at, at a mellowness. And I think that's why he you know, he wanted, you know, the, the original letter that he wrote was like a, a letter to uh, the troops in the field of like, say, here's how to, you know, enhance your beer, make a little bit more beer, you know, by taking like a firkin, drinking some of it down, adding back some molasses to it and then letting it work because, you know, the fil- the, the ca- that cast that they had wasn't filtered. You add a little bit more sugar in there and close it up, you know, oh. you'll have that full keg in a couple of days, you right. know, it's just a little... It's not really watered down because you're using some molasses to bump it up. Exactly. So we would always do a late fermentation, you know, addition of molasses 
which was, you know, how we made, made that, made that beer. And we still do make it that way. Nice. Nice. But the, the, the George Washington beer recipe, I got right from the layer, uh, archives, uh, manuscript department, in New York public library. And wow. But he's telling you, it's actually in my cook, in my cookbook. I, uh, <laughs> I printed it right in there. If somebody wants to make it at home, they're called at the time, the small beer. Because it was the first one through. Ah. But, uh, so I didn't, never held back. I figured we did all the research. I paid all the money to be able to get the, <laughs> the manuscripts, you know, right. copied. And uh, the same with Ben Franklin. But I think it's uh, it, it, what I think uh, also with the, the Washington is great for a dessert beer. Yes. Like chocolate. Uh, you have a, a chocolate mousse cake that we have, Mother Washington chocolate mousse right. cake. And, and then have a, have a porter next to it, or Washington. I mean, it's beautiful. The combinations are beautiful, but all of the beers works extremely well with food, which yes. was really the idea. Because remember, at the city tower, I didn't have a bar. Right. Know, 15, 15 seats in there, maybe outside. Right. But uh, mostly, uh, uh, you know, food driven restaurant with the ale. My, my question on the spruce beer. And as typically as I've read about a lot of spruce beers, was that because of the lack of the hops that they used the spruce to get that bitterness and that kind of that preservative factor? Well, I, I think it was one of the things that went into it. I mean, you know, there's still some hops in there, but I think it was more lack of hops. I think it was also the fact that, you know, getting spruce into there and giving it that, Pine. that sort of spice to balance the, the sweetness out, Okay, you know, just like hops do. I think that's where, where it came from. There's also, you know, we get all these stories about possibly, you know, you got you got vitamin C from from spruce needles and things like scurvy, that. scurvy, that, scurvy, things yep. like, you know, so, you know, I, I don't know how true that is because, you know, it just keeps you know, the sources aren't as great for that. But, I you know, it, it is a good story. But it's it's a story that- the spruce that we were doing, you know, we couldn't they, they talked about essence of spruce and. To me, it was like they didn't make like, you know. They were making tinctures and, and stuff like that, right. Exactly. So I think what, when, what we ended up doing, we went to an organic farm um, and were able to get the spruce needles and things like that. And, and we, we basically, you know, put them in a muslin bag and dunk it right into the boil. Wow. And, you know, it pulls out all that spruce flavor. It doesn't blow off during fermentation, which is great. And it just, re- it just really worked. Wow. And okay. any, anybody that tries those those uh, spru- essence of spruce, you're going to get something that tastes like pine salt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I but, 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 but Tom, the, the beautiful thing is, if you get drunk on spruce ale, you can tell your wife you're trying to heal your scurvy. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, uh, let's finally talk about Alexander Hamilton's Federalist Ale, which is a version, one of your yard signature beers, Philadelphia Pale yes. Ale. Can, can you describe it, Tom? And then... After Tom's so the done Alexander describing. Hamilton, it's it's you know it'd be like describing our, our Philadelphia Pale Ale. It's it's really almost exactly is the same, but it's it's got a little 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 things different we do at the end. But what it is, it's it's just a pale ale. It's a dry pale ale. Okay. It has an assertive citrus hop. Um, it's our number one seller by right. far. It's about thirty percent of what we do, and it's you know kind of like a Philadelphia mainstay or staple. And we thought that, you know, making this fourth beer to round everything out with the Alexander Hamilton, kind of that man of the people, you know, with, uh, you know, starting the treasury and things like that. We thought it would be perfect to have him, you know, as the representative and you right. know, be that 
the, the beer of the people. Nice. So it's the lightest one. It comes in at 4.6%, and it's got a great dry hop, and it's just really crisp and clean. Nice. Where, where and it's not bitter. Where did you guys find the recipe at? How did, I mean, it was in the manuscript. So there was no recipe. Ah, it was okay. Just, you know, we just you know the, the named it as the beer's people. Correct. Alexander but, Hamilton being the people person. But nice. the fact what I, we know is that every uh, most of the place made their own beer to begin with. So the IPA is a natural. Anyway, it's that's something right. that we pulled out of the thin air. You know. Nice. So I actually have one last question for Chef, and then and then I'll go to Tom. But Chef, if we had a time machine, and you could host a dinner party, and cook for Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, and Hamilton, what dishes would you serve? Oh gosh, it's uh, very easy. Okay. Okay. Very, very very easy. I would start off with my West Indian pepper pasta, oh, okay. and I would. And I would pair that with no other than George Washington's ale. It fits very well together. Nice. I would then move over to most likely like a lobster pie or turkey pot pie with uh, Thomas Jefferson because it can held up to it. Then wow. it becomes a bit more difficult. I would maybe have a smaller, of course, like a venison medallion because... My venison at the, at the time, I would marinate in the spruce ale to begin Ooh, with. Okay. And then you can take, take a little bit of that flavor of the forest, like, like I was telling people about it. So I would serve the, the spruce ale along with it. And I think for, again, there's a fine toss-up. If I would serve a dessert, it would be going back to uh, uh, George Washington. Or, or I make a dessert that is super sweet and then serve the pale ale. Oh, because okay. the pale ale can stand up to super sweet. So think of a baklava. Think of something super sweet, and then the pale ale balances is extremely well. Because you get the little feeling of the hop and the back. Of course. I, I shouldn't call it bitterness, but you know the little the little tingle. Yes, of course. Yes, yes, I got you. So, so... So Tom, you're invited too, and obviously you have those <laughs> those beers. But what kind of beer are you bringing, and why? If we had to narrow it down to one, are are you keeping them in their comfort zone with with the ales, or are you kind of blowing their minds with something from nowadays? You think? I, I would definitely try to blow their minds a little bit. Yeah, I mean because you know although beer is not that different than it was back then. But some of the advances we've done with this right. beer and different things that we're doing, just for instance, I would take one of our beers that's made with the Cosmic Punch yeast yes. that really breaks down those those uh, hops during mid fermentation and the the phyllos and gets yep. all the you know those oils and stuff going, gives you an amazing nose and being like, yeah, this is just you know a little bit more science put into the beer that's and nice. yeah. you know just give them a chance to. You know, try something that's, you know, strong, that's aromatic, that's just so easy to drink. It's like, you know, it's like the next coming of, of the new the new wave of beers. Yeah, so. absolutely. I think they I, I, <laughs> I, I do think they'd have their mind blown a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> well, this is uh, this has been an awesome ep- episode to actually talk to both of you guys and uh, kind of, you know, bring back some things for me because I also enjoy history very, very much and especially beer history. 
But I want to say thank you very much for joining us today to both of you. And I go happy 4th of July to you guys. Remember, remember, remember one thing. The entire Constitution was all developed over a lot of ale, a lot of late nights, a <laughs> lot of late nights in the city tavern. That's one thing to remember, right? Okay. You couldn't openly talk in the state house, which is now called Independent Small, because right. if you were saying something against the king, guess what? You'd be hanging under the next tree. Oh. So where did you take it? The tavern. You take it over to the tavern. And there was no police hours. Uh, they closed whenever and right. they drink whatever. And the amount of liquor they consumed. Very much. I I'm, I'm surprised they all they didn't die of liver disease earlier. <laughs> they all lived long, long, long lives. Think about yes, it. Yes, That's absolutely. Why, why beer is good for you. Yes. Beer is food. Yes, absolutely. Thank you guys very much. And I hope Cheers, you guys enjoy your time. All right. Thank you guys. Happy 4th. Thanks. Happy 4th. Hold on. Thanks. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Chef Walter Stabe and Tom Kehoe, our co-host, Maria Cabre, our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, Brian O'Connell. Thank you for listening. You can catch us each Friday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on Sirius XM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. Remember, people, the thirst is real. Thank you.